This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Broadcast Church Planting Podcast. We recently had a broadcast hangout with Andy McCulloch and Andy was sharing from his experience of planting a church in a Middle Eastern culture about what it looks like on the ground to contextualise our church planting and we're bringing you the recording of that hangout in this podcast episode. You can find the full notes on everything that Andy said over at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 63. So here is... Andy McCulloch. Hi, good evening or morning or wherever you are and however you're listening to this. Um, I'm going to be talking tonight about contextualization, as Rada said. Uh, i just pray briefly and then we'll get talking. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you that you came to earth, that you took flesh, that you lived among us, that you have great empathy and understanding of our context. I pray that on our mission wherever we are, however we're doing that, that we would be like you, living amongst people, uh, sharing their food and, and being filled with love and empathy. Lord, I pray that as we communicate the gospel, we would be like Jesus in doing that. In your mighty name, amen. So I think to understand what contextualization is, the easiest way is actually to look at the difference between Islam around the world, Muslims, and Christianity around the world. Because uh, with Muslims, wherever you go in the world, you can tell if someone's a Muslim by the way they dress, by the way their beard is. Um, you can go to a mosque in any country in the world and the style of worship will be the same. It will be in Arabic, in 7th century Arabic. It's very fixed and very shaped to wherever you go in the world, this is exactly what you do. And that has its own beauty. But Christianity is very different. Wherever you go, whatever country, whatever kind of church you go to, it's different. Not only that we sing different songs or we speak different languages or we dress differently or we eat different food, but actually uh, even the content of preaching and the way that church is worked out and what Christians call themselves. And some Christians would say, uh, I was saved then. Other people would say, I repented then. Other people would say, I was born again then. Even the, the, the choice of language is very different. And so Christianity has about it an intrinsic translatability. And that's very different. And when we talk about being true to your context, that's what we mean. It's not like McDonald's. I've been to McDonald's in maybe eight different countries and they were all broadly the same. Now McDonald's is trying to contextualize. So in Turkey now you can get a a McDonald's Turkish burger, which has... Basically, it's exactly the same, but the meat is different. But if you ask any Turkish person, they would say, McDonald's, it's a foreign, it's an American restaurant. Um, It's not Turkish, you know. And so contextualization isn't just, oh, we're going to change a couple of things. It's not just, oh, we're going to do a slightly different music style or we'll, we'll speak in this different language. Actually, there is a more fundamental change that happens when the gospel is lived out in a different context. And that's what I want to look at tonight, really. I think 
contextualization is quite hard for Westerners to do. Uh, it was first, the, the, the term was first raised in Christian circles in 1972 by a, a guy from Taiwan, actually. Uh, and, and even there, you think it's easier for Asians. Asians would often see truth in terms of context or beauty in the eye of the beholder, if you like. There's a famous Chinese story that I'm going to tell you. And I think actually this helps us understand what we're talking about. So here we go. A little story. Once upon a time, uh, there was a poor peasant farmer in a village and he only owned one horse. And one day his only horse ran away. And all the villagers came to commiserate with him and said, oh, we're so sorry about your horse. And he said, do not commiserate with me. Nobody knows what is good and what is bad. And then the next day, his runaway horse came back and following it was a wild horse. So now the farmer had two horses and all the villagers came to congratulate him and said, congratulations on your horse coming back and the new wild horse. And he said, don't congratulate me. Who knows what is good and what is bad? And the next day, the farmer's only son was riding the wild horse and he fell off and broke both of his legs. And all the villagers came to commiserate with him. Oh, we're so sorry about your son. And he said, do not commiserate with me. Who knows what is good and what is bad? And then the next day, war broke out in that country and they came from the government to recruit all the able-bodied young men to go off to fight. But because the farmer's son wasn't able-bodied, he didn't have to go to fight. So all the villagers came to congratulate him and said, oh, it's such good news, your son. And he said, please don't congratulate me. Who knows what is good and what is bad? And apparently in China, that story can go on forever until you get bored. But you understand the point. It's impossible to look at one of those single events and say this was a good thing or this was a bad thing. It's the context that makes it good or bad. Now, as Westerners, we tend to think really decontextually, actually. We think atomistically. We take something out and say this is either good or it's bad. We look at things on their own, whereas people in the East look at things in their context and understand them in that way. And to, to contextualize, I would argue, we actually have to try and think a bit more in that way. We have to handle gray more. We have to zoom out from the issue and look at the context more. Uh, we, don't, we have to not jump to quick judgments and say this is good or this is bad. And I'm going to try and give you some examples about that, because in the West, we would talk about justice as being blind. Justice is blind. It's objective. Um, you, Whereas in reality, it never is. You know, you can take into account someone's psychological state as to why they did what they did. Or you can take into account uh, their story and where they've come from. You know, you think of referees in football. And it's not just that is a yellow carded offense. I give you a yellow card or I don't. So often the referee will look at the context. Has this player done three fouls already? Fine. Well, I'll give him a yellow card for this one or Am I trying to slow the game down at the moment or speed the game up? And so they will judge according to the context of the game, not just the individual offence. And so as Westerners, we really need to uh, get better at trying to zoom out and look at the whole context in order to be able to handle some of this grey. And I would argue that if, if we can't do that, we're actually really going to struggle to contextualise. We're just going to come into a place and say, this is how it is. It's like this. 
with no space for negotiation with the culture, which is what contextualization is about. So we're just going to look at now a few kind of areas of church planting or areas of ministry life and just draw a few examples. And the first one is ethics. Now, there, there is a certain extent to which ethics are situational. Not always. It is always wrong to murder. But there are many ethical issues that do vary according to context. So the book of Proverbs talks about bribery six times. There are six proverbs about bribery. Three of them are negative. It's wrong to extort a bribe. But three of them are quite positive. For example, a man's gift makes room for him and ushers him into the presence of the great. That is a, a proverb about a poor person making gifts in order to get access to a king. And it's a proverb about actually giving bribes. And so the, the book of Proverbs has three proverbs against bribery and three for bribery. So is it right or is it wrong? Well, it depends on your context, which you're going to hear me say a lot tonight, because that's the point of this talk. Um, and one commentator on that issue it says that the Old Testament seems to reflect a recognition of the power differential between a poor person who gives a gift in order to stage off injustice and the rich who uses his power to exploit the poor, the powerful and the powerless are not judged by the same abstract absolute. And actually, when we approach ethics, that is a huge statement. You can't just look at something and say that is a wrong thing. It depends on so many things. Partly, I think it depends on people's trajectory. We're all on a journey, aren't we, from being sinners to being with the Lord in the new creation, in glory. And everyone is at a different point on that journey. And sometimes I think we need to look at people's trajectory to understand what is going on with them. So I'll give you an example. Imagine there's a person in your church with two wives. There's a man in your church with two wives. You find out he's got two wives. Now, it probably won't happen in your context unless you're working in an African context or many Middle Eastern contexts where people do come from a polygamous background, in which case it could well happen in your context. It could be a live issue for you. The question is, what is this guy's trajectory? If he previously had four wives and now he's only got two, then he's doing quite well. If he previously had one wife and now he's got two, then he's going backwards. And now I know it's a little bit of a trite example, but, but the point is this. You can't just dive in and go, oh, he's got two wives, throw him out of the church. Actually, he may be making massive progress in his discipleship journey. In Turkey, we, um, we, we, for, for many years, a lot of guys in the church were smoking. Yeah, we would even put a cigarette break in the middle of the meeting because people couldn't go the whole way. Now, Someone came in from the outside and said, oh, how dare you? You're kind of making room for smoking. And I think the reality is, hey, we'll get to smoking. But a lot of these guys have just got born again from a massively unreached background. You know, let's have them stop beating their wives first. You know, we've got a long way to go. And so often with micro ethical issues, there is a, a situational question. 
Yeah, what is their trajectory? Which direction are they going? I was in the gym the other day just to illustrate this, and I was doing my best, but all the big, muscly young guys in the gym were probably looking over at me thinking, cool, that guy's let himself go. Whereas the reality is, I've probably come quite a long way from what I was to now. Yeah, so I was actually going in a good direction, but they're all standing there judging a snapshot of me rather than judging me in the light of my trajectory. And so the question is, an important one. Two of my boys have special needs on the autistic spectrum. And so I can't parent them the same as my other children. I can't expect the same things from them. There has to be some allowance because of their context. So that's a kind of tiny introduction to the area of situational ethics. But in, in terms of contextualization and church planting, it, it's a huge issue. The second area I want to look at is the area of leadership. Uh, I would argue that leadership is not like riding a bicycle. Okay, uh, I learned to ride a bike in Cyprus. I've ridden a bike in many different countries. Bikes are different. Roads are different. India was probably the scariest place to ride a bike. But the reality is, it's the same skill set pretty much. Leadership is not like that. Leadership is not a decontextual package of gifts, or this is a gift of leadership that you have, and I will drop you in the jungle and you lead the kind of tribal people in the jungle with your gift of leadership. It doesn't work like that. Leadership is a contextual gift. It's, you know, you've heard the saying, you think you're leading, but if there's no one behind you, then you're just taking a walk. And so it, in every country, leadership looks different. So you can't train someone to be a leader in London and then send them to Japan and expect them to use that same skill set. It's actually destructive, counterproductive to do that. I found when we moved to the Middle East, I had to unlearn so many of the things to do with leadership that I had learned and then relearn what leadership looked like in a different context. So there's an undressing and then a kind of redressing because leadership is not decontextual. You can't look at it atomistically. Leadership is to do with where you are and what is valued in the culture and what you're trying to build. And that's different everywhere. I have one friend working in a Muslim nation and um, he's from Russia originally. And he's got in touch with the Russian churches and said, oh, can you send me some more leaders? The Russian churches didn't want to release any of their good guys to him. So they sent him all their recovering drug, drug addicts, true story. Uh, but this guy said, actually, in our context, these guys who they saw as useless in their churches came to us, uh, learned the culture and the language, and have ended up being massively effective church planters in the nation that I'm in. True story. And so someone who was not counted as a leader in one place went to a different context and became a really fruitful leader. And I've seen this over and over again. I was talking to a pastor the other day who said, oh, this guy was like a, he was like a nothing guy in our church. He went to China, he's been there a long time, and he's incredibly fruitful there. And so leadership is different in different places. It's, it's contextually biased. You see this when you sometimes bring leaders from really effective, powerful men of God or women of God from other countries, and then you bring them to the UK and ask them to teach, and they're just not received because people don't understand. It's not just a language thing. People don't see the charismatic thing or the the kind of initiative thing or whatever it is that they look for in a leader. Don't see it in these guys, even though they're incredibly fruitful, powerful men of God in their own context. 
because leadership doesn't always cross cultures. And so uh, why then do we think it's okay to take leaders from the UK and send them to other countries and expect them to teach on leadership? If we don't receive it that way, then why would other people receive it in the other direction? And sometimes I think that teaching about leaders and what they are and what they should do is one of the strongest forms of neo-colonialism today, where we just export this kind of package of stuff around the world and say, oh, this is what leadership is. And I just think you're not taking account of context. The next issue I want to look at, so we've done ethics, we've looked at leadership. The next kind of tiny introduction I want to give you is the area of church planting. Therefore, every church in its context will be different. Church planting is more art than science. It's, you can't take a list of things and say, if you go to another place and do these things, then you will successfully plant a church. And you know this, but the reason is every context is different. Every leader is different. Every style is different. Every mix of gifts is different. I've, I've had people say to me, oh, that guy there, he's not a church planter. He's not a church plant leader. He's not the right mix of gifts. And then I've seen that guy go and be incredibly fruitful. And so the, the issue is not, oh, this is what a church plant looks like. The issue is, no, in your context, what has God gifted you to do? It's more art than science. I, I, I think if there is one gift that cross-cultural church planters need above all others or one kind of Bible hero, it would be Barnabas. It, it said of Barnabas that he went to Antioch and he saw the grace of God there. You know, when Saul was this kind of emerging guy and all the leaders in Jerusalem were scared of him, Barnabas championed him. He saw the grace of God on him. He brought him in. And, and if anything, I think this ability to see the grace of God on people, to say, oh, this is what God is doing. This is how God is working here. And actually to be reactive to the Holy Spirit's initiative is, is probably the thing that you need more than all others in cross-cultural church planting. You look and you say, what is God doing? How is God working here? Let's align ourselves with that. The next uh, thing then really on this, and I think it's, I think it's obvious, uh, but I think it needs saying, is therefore we must work really hard to understand our context. Jesus spent 30 years living among people, listening, walking with people, eating with people, 30 years listening and learning, and then three years preaching. Now, the 30 years listening made the three years speaking very effective. But see, the reality is this, you can't answer people's questions until you know what those questions are. Often we turn up in a town and we say, right, I'm here with the answers. And people are like, well, hang on, we didn't even ask you a question yet. And to assume that you know people's questions, people's needs, people's issues is to ignore context. So when we go cross-culturally and you've got to learn language, we would always encourage people to have a couple of years studying the language, getting to know the city, getting to know the people, spending lots of time listening and asking and researching, working really hard on understanding that context so that when you start talking and when you start answering, 
you know what you're answering. Does that make sense? I, I, I think it's obvious from the ministry of Jesus, uh, but I think that so often we just turn up and start talking. I, I believe really strongly that the first time you visit somewhere, you shouldn't visit there to preach. You should visit there to listen. Um, I, I think, how can you turn up somewhere and preach unless you know what they're asking, what the questions are, unless it's in dialogue, unless it's in conversation? I think it's arrogant and I think it's presumptive. And I think God, who knows everything, didn't just turn up on earth and start talking. There was this time of being around and listening and understanding. I think if he chose to do it, then so must we. My final area when it comes to contextualization that I just want to, and these are all like tiny little introductions to obviously what is an enormous subject. And I know you're in this series at the moment. Um, but the final one really would be then the Bible and the contextual nature of the Bible and how we should handle the Bible when we go into different contexts. So our understanding of inspiration is contextual. Again, if you contrasted it with Islam, which is quite a helpful black and white contrast, in Islam they believe that the Quran was pre-existent, that it's perfect, that it existed in heaven, and then it kind of descended in its perfect, complete form to Muhammad through Revelation as this book. And so it's 100% divine and 0% human. The, the, the Christian understanding of the Bible, of the word of God, of inspiration, is it's 100% divine, it's God's word, but it's also 100% human. It's David's words, it's Paul's words, it's John's words. Yeah? And so, like our understanding of Jesus himself, 100% divine and 100% human. And, and so... The Bible then is contextual in nature. So you've got the four Gospels, which are actually four contextualizations of the same kind of gospel story. You've got Matthew contextualizing, putting it into language for Jews. You've got Mark putting it into language for people in Rome. You've got Luke putting it into language for Gentiles. And then you've got John 50 years later when communities have changed and culture has changed telling the same story again but in a really different way and so even within the bible you have these different contextualizations and i think that gives us an insight really into what it means to take the same story about the world and about who god is and about what jesus has done on the cross the same story but tell it in really different ways in different language with different pictures and different illusions with different application in different contexts and so even the bible helps us understand what it is to contextualize the gospel. The Bible is infinitely translatable. In fact, we hold translatability really high. We want people to receive the gospel in their mother tongue. We want Turks to receive it in Turkish, not in English. Yeah, and so, um, but linguistic translatability begets cultural translatability because there's no one-to-one -one equivalency in language. So in Greek, New Testament, you've got four words for love, four different nuances of love. But in our English translation, they're all translated love because we don't have that flexibility in our language. And so we, do we lose something in our understanding of love, in our relational breadth? Maybe. And so translation is never 100% direct. There's always some nuance that changes 
And so reading the Bible in different languages, it actually says, therefore, things with slightly different emphases. And that's an aspect of contextualization. And theology comes from the questions that we are asking. So we read the same Bible, the same closed canon, which we hold as the word of God. But we come to the Bible depending on your country, asking what it says about polygamy, asking what it says about head coverings, asking what it says about burial, asking what it says about ancestors. And you think Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology doesn't address any of those questions. Why? Because they're not the questions he's asking. And so we have questions, we go to the Bible and get answers, but in your different contexts, you will have different questions. And so you'll go to the Bible and you'll see different things. And that is a beauty of Christianity. So in conclusion, uh, just going to throw some words at you, which I love. These words represent, I believe, some key attitudes or some key needs in contextualization. And you'll notice I haven't said this is a program for contextualization. These are steps. This is what you should do. I really think we need to be able to zoom out and think broadly and handle lots of great. And if we can do that, then we will approach our context with sensitivity. And so some key words. Number one, proximity. I think when you're living in amongst people, in understanding their world, then it gives you something in contextualization that you don't have from outside. So everyone can be a better president or a better football manager sitting at home on their sofa watching TV. But when, when you're proximate then there's more nuance, there's more complication. The closer you get to things, the more complex and confusing they are. And so God didn't sit in heaven and just judge us. He came close, Emmanuel, he became incarnate, he drew near, he took flesh, he knows what it is to be hungry and lonely and thirsty. Why? Because proximity is a, is a massive part of mission, a mission that is not proximate, is dead. Secondly, empathy. And this is similar, but you don't actually contextualize as an intellectual exercise. You don't just look at your city and research it and go, these are the questions and these are the issues. And so I'm going to bring these answers. Actually, contextualizing is about empathy. It's about living amongst people and actually feeling the things that they feel. You get so close to smelling the rose that you feel the thorn is what we call it. And so actually when you're living in a place where certain things are the issue and they become the issue for you too, then you're able to contextualize from within. Uh, I have a friend who's in Mongolia uh, and he, he posted the other day, he said, I've just found out that in Mongolia they have the highest antidepressant usage in the world. So I'm off down the pharmacy. And his point was obvious. If everyone here is suffering from depression, there must be a reason. And I think I'm starting to feel it too. And um, uh, I actually, when we were living in Istanbul, and just in hours of traffic every day trying to get the kids to school, just sitting in this massive traffic that doesn't move four hours a day on the school run. Um, uh, that's how I developed my theology of inefficiency. In the UK, I believed that efficiency was good and was godly and was good stewardship but actually i think when you live in a country where efficiency isn't an option you start to realize there's a beauty to living an inefficient life but that's for another time and so empathy 
The third one I'd like to throw at you as a, as a big important word would be journey. Uh, contextualization is like trying to hit a moving target because culture is always changing. But then also we are journeying from where we were and what our understanding was to the kind of the local or the indigenous. And so we are moving slowly towards that and we're constantly tweaking. I'll give you an example. In our context in Turkey, we took the concept of alpha but obviously didn't just translate it into Turkish and teach it as the Turkish alpha course because alpha is contextual to the UK. It's asking questions, answering questions English people are asking. So alpha one is boring, untrue, irrelevant, because that's a question in England. It's not a question in Turkey. And Turkey are kind of alpha one, if you like, was is it Western imperialistic, capitalistic and religious kind of thing, because that's the question everyone's asking. Yeah. Um, but what we found was, we ran it 13 times with different groups before we'd actually kind of landed a shape we're happy with because we'd run it, we'd take feedback, we'd tweak it, we'd change it again, we'd change it again. There's a Japanese business model that is talking about kind of constant little tweaks and adjustments. You get feedback, you change, you change. It's very different to the kind of maxim of if it ain't broken, then don't fix it. And so for us, contextualization has always been a journey. We're, we're, we're constantly trying to become more local, more indigenous, more contextual, and we'll keep taking feedback and doing that, and it's a journey. Uh, fourthly, uh, I would use the phrase, we really want to talk about mission with people, not mission to people. The biblical thing from Galatians 2 would be about eating with the Gentiles. I love that picture of mission. It's not, hey, here we come with all the answers, um, and you are our subjects, and you will listen and be saved. It's actually, uh, we do it together. The Bible sometimes talks about the man of peace. You know, you find someone who receives you, you live in his home, and he almost becomes your kind of host or guide to that area, to that city, and, and you ask him your questions. And all the years I've been preaching in Turkish, as, as an example, before I've preached on a Sunday, I've sat down in the week with a guy and just gone, how does this land? How, what question would people be asking here? Would people understand this joke? Would it be funny in this language? You know, and, and constantly getting feedback and then tweaking and putting it through these kind of filters of local wisdom. And I think it, it's always got to be done in that way, partnership with people, not just kind of imposing your stuff on people. And finally, I'd say we always want to hold before us that the end goal is that the local church is indigenous that it's local so if you're in germany you want to plant a german church that will that will live locally long after you you know foreign christian workers they come and they leave stuff happens uh, hudson taylor said we're like the scaffolding you know we're around the building we're important for a while we, we teach and we lay foundations and it's an important role but there comes a time when the scaffolding is dismantled and then the building is seen in, it, in all its indigenous glory. And I think our goal must always be, how do we make the gospel live in this culture, in this place, in this time? So you, you first spoke about ethics. And uh, the, the first question from that section is, how do we figure out which ethical questions are situational and which are absolute? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> it's a huge it's a huge question um some of it you will know intrinsically and you will feel intrinsically and you will know from your bible reading 
Um, but some of it you will only find out when you land in a new place and suddenly go, wow, everyone doesn't think this. And one of the things we try and train our people to do is when you see something that just seems wrong to you, instead of going, oh, that's wrong, to go just to pause <laughs> and go, oh, that's different. Now, it may be really, really, really wrong, but we have something in our brain that is so tuned to going black and white, wrong and right, good and bad, and it does it so quickly. And I think we, we, we're just trying to train our people to slow that down fractionately and just to say, why are they doing what they're doing? It could still be wrong. <laughs> But, but we, so we're just trying to put that pause in there. There's that verse in James, slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak, something like that, isn't it? And I think that's what we're trying to train. Rather than being quick to judge and quick to say, oh, that's wrong, just to try and pause and to ask the question, why are they doing that? And we found that with training and with time, you can actually adjust to that. And then you look, may look at an issue and you may go, actually, no, it's still a black and white wrong issue. It, it could well be. But you may look at it and go, actually, maybe there is just a situational reason for this. And so we, we've just got to train ourselves to approach ethical issues with slightly more thought and slowness, I would say. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, and then you obviously spoke about leadership. And we have a question that says, in a country like the UK, with many people from different backgrounds and cultures, is there a predominant leadership style that works in a nation? Okay, so Jesus said that uh, we shouldn't be like the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth want to lord it over you and we shouldn't be like that. And one application from that verse would be, actually, our leadership style should not be like a world leadership style. Our leadership in the church is different. And so I think we would, we would hold that. So in other words, you, you're not just looking at the context and going, oh, people in this country are very hierarchical, and we should build the church hierarchical. But if people in this country are democratic, we should build the church democratic. It's saying, no, no, no. Church leadership is not like the culture. It's different. But... I think what, what we do sometimes is we say, oh, well, this is the leadership style that I'm used to or that I'm comfortable with, and therefore everyone will be. Um, I'll try and give you an example. I was speaking to a friend the other day. I hope he's not listening. If he is, God bless him, um, who is a leader in a church in London in a really multicultural area, and they want to bring through more kind of elders in the church who aren't just their white middle-class bracket, but for them, one of the, and they've got some brilliant guys in the church who I would say, you know, from different kind of racial backgrounds who are very gifted, real uh, character, all, all, the, all the biblical requirements of eldership. But the church are saying, actually, if you want to be an elder in our church, there are certain capacity requirements. You need to be able to make three Sundays out of four. You need to be able to make it to elders meetings twice a month. You need to be able to, you know, uh, take responsibility for an area of ministry. And so they've got these kind of, criteria for eldership which some of these guys will never meet because of their the way they do family the way they do work the hours that they you know and so 
the question then is, are, are those extra biblical things a really cultural thing for white middle class folks? Because if they only hold those, they're only ever going to build within certain narrow parameters. But if they can let those go and go, actually, the biblical thing is, does he have influence? Does he have godly character? Does he have one wife? That's true for these guys. Okay, their capacity uh, and priority order even on things might be different. But we, and so, again, it's going, is God on these guys? What does the Bible say about leadership? Actually, not very much. <laughs> and so sometimes so much of what we think is culturally conditioned. Yeah, and actually the next question ties very nicely to that. It says, you say people from the overseas in the UK often aren't as well received as they could be. What can we do to help people from other cultures who are in our churches contextualize their gifts to the UK? Really, really good question. Um, I think, as I've tried to say a few times, I think so often it starts with listening. So hearing people's stories, being in people's homes, eating food together. I think that's Jesus' ministry model. Uh, Jesus ate a lot of food. And, and I think the, you know, the, the very first place that these things start is hearing people's story, where they're coming from, getting an understanding, you see, of their context, of their trajectory, of their journey, will then help you understand where they're at and therefore what, what their gift is and how it can be used in the church. And I think the other thing we have to do is we have to say, if God has brought this person here, and if God is with them, then we want them to bring their gift and we need to encourage them to use it um, and, and therefore make space for them, even if it wouldn't normally be part of what we'd be thinking about. Um, I think Jesus was very happy to be distracted. Um, so he's on the road to Jerusalem, but then Zacchaeus is up in a tree and suddenly Jesus is kind of turning to him and talking to him. And, 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 and I think... So often when we're building churches, we're like, oh, we're on this road, we're going to Jerusalem. And I think, actually, we say, oh, look, God's over there. Or he's doing something in the margins that were unexpected. Let's kind of go there. So it really is trying to see what God is doing rather than what people bring to what we're trying to do. Great. Uh, and someone said, uh, great comment. Mission with people, not to people. Can, can you give them some more illustrations, maybe? Brilliant. Yeah. So I think that um, certainly in a cross-cultural context, we have found this all the time on so many issues as a foreigner. Um, even though I'm leading the church and I've got the kind of the experience and all these people are brand new believers who just got saved out of Muslim backgrounds. Hallelujah. There's so many things on which I would defer to them <laughs> because I'm an outsider and I just don't understand. Um, so... Uh, there was one time when there was a big issue with four ladies in the church, uh, local ladies who had kind of massive uh, problems and wanted to leave. And I took one of our new believers with me, who's a good heart and guy, uh, to the meeting, and we sat and talked. And because so many of their problems were cultural issues, I just didn't understand. This guy, even though he's a brand new believer, had more wisdom and insight and pastoral grace for this situation than I did yeah and so so often uh, proximity to a situation can can understand and unpack the situation so much more and so we've really found actually if you just 
you want to turn up somewhere and do your thing without any local partner or local guide or sounding board or a friend to bounce things off, you're going to get it wrong. And it, so th that's what I would understand by mission. And we've even done that with, with unbelievers because as part of their discipleship, you know, I've gone into places with unbelievers and they've kind of opened the door for me and helped me meet the people and understand the context because I think if they say this guy is all right, then, then I'm kind of received. Yeah, they're sort of like a gatekeeper. They're an artist. And so, it's, it, again, it's about trying to get rid of that arrogance that says, hey, I have all the answers. And I think, no, you don't have all the answers. No one does. You will need each other. And since this is a church planting broadcast, there are loads and loads of questions about church planting. So the first one is, um, it says, such a great talk and really interesting, so brilliant. Can you give us some ways in which we can hear the questions people in our town are asking? Yeah, okay. Um, so some of the things we've done is in that kind of intentional early, hey, let's try and understand the culture phase, um, we've looked at, uh, watched a lot of movies, watched a lot of soap operas, um, read a lot of magazines. Magazines are often really interesting uh, because the picture on the front of the magazine is usually their picture of heaven or what you're trying to get to. So it's a nice car or fit body or, you know, so it's like, uh, this is my goal in life. And then the magazine is like an instruction manual. It's really insightful into a culture. Ah, you know? oh, this is what we're aiming for. Uh, the good thing about things like movies is that movies, they never just talk about the boring bits of people's lives. They always talk about kind of crisis or weddings or deaths or emergencies. And it's at those places that you really see culture kick in, actually. You know, so people can look quite Western in their sort of everyday life. But then in a crisis or an illness or a wedding or a funeral, then you really see the deep things of what people believe and understand. And I would urge people to visit, uh, without sounding morbid, but go to a funeral in your town, go, go to a wedding in your town, um, go to hospital and talk to sick people. Because when people are in crisis, then you really see that sort of underlying worldview things come to the fore. And that's when you really see what people are scared of. It's when you really see what people value. And so being with people in crisis is a great kind of cultural teacher. Mm, that's really interesting. And um, you said that obviously the first two years are very important for um, language learning and culture learning. So we have a question that says, practically speaking, what does day-to-day -day life look like in, the, in those two years? that you're getting to the culture. Okay, so let's take the assumption that you have moved somewhere with a team and your family or whatever to plant a church in a new city and you've, taken, you've managed to fund a couple of years or a year to really try and put your head down and learn some language and settle your family. We would say during that time you have three goals and only three goals. There's only three things you're trying to do. Um, given all those conditions I just mentioned. And number one is kind of stay married and keep your family 
well and try and enter with your family into a certain pattern of life. And the, the fight actually for routine and, and stuff like that is huge. I mean, we've just moved back to the UK for a season. We've been in six months. We haven't landed a routine yet. We don't know where to shop yet. I haven't got car insurance yet. Don't tell anyone. You know, but all this kind of stuff, it just takes so long to land. And that's in a country where I speak the language. So just to land normal life and routine can take months and months and months. And so that's number one. Number two is you're working really hard, um, kind of studying language and culture. And there are many different ways to study language, whether it's school or whether it's conversation partners, depending on your intentionality and how your brain works and all the rest of it. And studying culture, like some of the examples I just gave. So you spend two years going, at the end of this two years, I'm not going to be fluent in language or culture. I'm not going to know anything, everything, but I will have got to a certain level. So that's number two. And then number three is whatever team you've come with, uh, you know, keeping some aspect of team life or proto-community uh, working towards the point where you'll be able to plant a church in the future. So if you're only doing those two things, that's going to be an exhausting full-time job. You know, when you're learning language, you're using a muscle you never usually use in life, and it's exhausting. We would sit on the sofa at 7 o'clock at night and just go, I'm exhausted. All I've done is read books. You know, it's just an accurate. And so just doing those three things, if you can just do those three things, you'll do super well. Excellent. Thank you for that. Yes, it, it's, it's late here where I am, so pretty tired. <laughs> feeling tired. <laughs> um, we have a question that kind of extends beyond those two years. So apart from learning a language, if appropriate, what other key things would you encourage someone to do in order to understand culture in, in which they're planting? Okay. Um, so with direct reference, not just to understanding the culture, but with direct reference to planting, one useful grid, if you want a kind of practical tool, uh, comes from Tim Keller's book. Um, well, no, Tim Keller's Church Planting Manual, I think. Um, he's quite thoughtful on contextualization. Uh, and he's got this kind of grid. Have you seen it, Rod, or I don't know? But where basically you take, uh, along one side, you want to put in kind of all the areas of ministry that you want to do or that you think a church should have. So small groups or Sunday meetings or what preaching should be like or what care for the poor should be like or what community should be like. So on one side, you put the things that you think, hey, our church should be doing these things. And then along the kind of other axis, we put various cultural uh, aspects. So for us, we picked three for our context in Istanbul. One was it's a big city and people live in a big city and that's got its functionality. Number two was people are Muslims. And so that brings a worldview and, and a whole package of stuff with it. And number three was people are Turkish. And that brings a whole load of kind of cultural stuff with it. So you put that and then you just go through and you say, OK, Small groups. What does it mean to do small groups in the big city? Well, everyone finishes work at nine o'clock at night. So all our small groups are going to have to be at midnight. Yeah, so that's number one. Or whatever. Uh, you know, people are Muslim. What does that mean for small groups? Well, what do Muslims do for small groups? They, they meet in homes to read the Quran, don't they? What does that look like? How can we uh, kind of make some things make sense there? And then people are Turkish. What does that mean about small groups? Well, it means that everyone's really worried about what their neighbors think. And everyone busts it out their neighbours all the time. So we won't use guitars or sing because that's going to just 
bring hell down on everybody's head, you know? And so you, you're looking at various things about your context, various things that the church should do, and then you're just kind of asking the questions, okay, then what should our ministry look like? Now, that doesn't answer everything, but it's, it's a kind of useful grid to help you think about the process of contextualizing church programs. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, and because obviously some people are planting in, in donations, some people are planting in, in different different contexts. So we have a question. How is contextualization different when you're planting in a place that is made up of multiple cultures, cultures rather than just one? Yeah. Um, it's a really difficult question. For a few reasons. One is to do with what vision of church you're building for. See, some people would argue that one new man in Christ, which is a really high New Frontiers value, can only be expressed where everyone is therefore all these different cultures are all together in one meeting on a Sunday, being one new man in Christ. But the reality, the, the and in some situations, you get a multicultural church that is truly multicultural and can really, truly express that. So everybody is on a kind of level playing field. And that's beautiful when it happens. But the reality is most churches will have a dominant cultural group. So let's say like the example I gave before, they're kind of white English people. And then you start adding in lots of cultures around, but it's not a level playing field. You're in someone's comfort zone, not somebody else's comfort zone. The, the illustrations that you use in preaching will appeal to some people and not other people. The style of music will appeal to some people and not other people. The, the busyness of church program during the week will favor certain kinds of people and not other kinds of people. And so uh, there will always be differentials in your contextualization if you want to build multicultural one new man in Christ. Obviously, the other way of doing it then is micro-contextualization, which a lot of people are trying to do now with sites. So you're doing a multi-site thing, multi-language thing, uh, where you you move someone into your really Asian area to really identify with those guys and start gathering in their style. You move someone else into your really African area and do something there. So you're still expressing your mission, you're still reaching your city, but you're realizing you can't do it all in one meeting or one structure. And I actually believe that we need to do more of the second in the UK at the moment and go to where, like, you know, God didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to where we were. And I think sometimes we sit in our churches waiting for people to come to us. But your church isn't accessible just because it's got a wheelchair ramp and a good website. Accessibility is about cultural comfort and people walking in and feeling emotionally and culturally connected and they'll look around and go are there other people like me here do i understand what's going on does does this preaching speak to my felt needs and so sometimes i think we've got to go to where people are by contextualizing in many different ways in the same city rather than waiting for people to come to us hmm. so again this this next question is, is interesting in light of what you just said in countries and cities with many different nationalities, how important is it missionally to have monocultural churches that can understand a given culture and multicultural churches? Yeah, I, I, I believe you need both. I believe within the same movement you need both with different models. Uh, within the same cities you need both. Uh, I, I think it takes, it depends on gift, 
I genuinely believe some really good-hearted pastors who are trying to do something multicultural just don't don't aren't able to get outside of their monocultural box and learn and embrace and some of the things that we've been talking about tonight. And so I think if that's your gift, then build a monocultural church and have other people reach in other ways. But I, I, I don't think one is better than the other. We need both. Um, I think it, depending on, you know, in the US at the moment, where Sunday morning is the most divided time in the whole nation, the big fight in the US at the moment is for multiple churches that really bring people together. Um, but again, that depends on your state and your city. And so, I, partly, you have to look at your context and what do we really need here at this time. I think, particularly when you're reaching the unreached people in the city, so when you're talking about you know, the Somalis in your city, the Pakistanis in your city. When, you, when there's an unreached people group, I think probably you're going to have to go to them, and they're not going to have. They're not going to come to you. So probably you're going to have to work really hard to reach the unreached if there's those kind of people in your city. Well, you you provoked um, a lot of interest in yourself, Andy. I have to say. So there are some personal questions. Um, and the first one is, we often learn most from mistakes that we make. Can you share some of the mistakes, mistakes you have made in regard to contextualization and what you subsequently learned? Sure, okay, uh, millions. Um, so I would say one is, in, in a church planting sense, um, we really believe that a milestone is getting to local elders. So getting to the point where local guys uh, who've got saved on our foundation come through and express eldership in the church. And by the grace of God, we've been able to get there. Um, but sometimes I've been so focused on getting to elders and looking at who are going to be the elders here, who are going to be the guys that are going to come through an elder this church, that I've not focused on the kind of broader discipleship of everybody. Or, you know, the 99% of people in the church who aren't going to be an elder. And I think Jesus told us to go and make disciples, not to go and make elders. And so sometimes I've been a little too task-oriented I throw my hands up. I think it's something we're processing in our context at the moment and gone. I've worked so hard to bring through elders that I've neglected, you know, the kind of energy of discipleship of everybody. And I think Jesus told us to make disciples. So there's one. Um, I think the other would just be from a, from a cross-cultural point of view, underestimating the, the pain of it. And the fact that that is normal and that that is everyone and that suffering and difficulty aren't just a side product of mission or don't just happen to some people, but it's actually part of cross-cultural mission. You know, reaching the unreached, you can go for 20 years and, and have massive pain and trauma and emotional and spiritual difficulties and see nothing happen because Satan's kingdom is very strong. And I think sometimes we've tried to measure things with like our success lens and go, oh, it should, you know, 
should be growing or it should be multiplying or all this and just poured you know so we just returned to the UK for a while after seven years of Turkey and I'm going did we even make a scratch <laughs> did Satan even know we came you know that bit uh, in Ephesus where he's like I know Paul were you you know did we did we even knock on his door and it's hurt so much and there's been so much pain with it, it was, you know and so I think underestimating the the slowness and the faithfulness and the um, minuscule advances that, that it is for a, a seed to grow into a mustard tree. I mean, it takes a long time. Yeah. That's really, really good. Well, not that you have to go through pain, obviously, but actually, <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good for people to hear that is a part and parcel of, of what the church planting is, isn't it? And because we are very near our, our, um, the end of our time, one more question. If you were planting again in a new place, what are the first four things you would do in terms of contextualization? Wow. Great question. Um, okay, I think number one would be not be in a hurry uh, so really make the most of the learning stage you know I think we talk about oh taking two years and Jesus took 30 um, and I think even just pushing to get language in and be ready to open a Sunday meeting I, I would I would want to make I would want to enjoy the learning stage more and make the most of that kind of entering time because I think once once you start on a track church planting it's very difficult to kind of change track completely and so I'd want to just take lots of time to make sure that I started in the right place so that'd be number one really enjoy that stage I think number two would be ideally uh, have someone on the kind of core team owning the vision from the beginning that's a local person now when you're reaching the unreached you can't always do that I'm aware of that, but I think to have that kind of man of peace or guide character that we were talking about, but actually have them on the inside as part of your team initially would be a dream that you always start with what you have, not with what you wish you had. But that would be number two. Um, number three, I would, I would want to get to multipliability quicker. So I think you're not even just talking about planting one church, but you're talking about planting a region of churches or several churches. And you want that in your DNA from day one, but not just in your DNA, but in your actual, where you're going with it. So I think you, you wanted to think straight away, hey, as a foreigner, I probably won't be here very long. Um, you know, I might be here 10 years, but I might only have five. We might get sick, we might get thrown out, there might be persecution. And so how does this get away from me and be multipliable without me quickly? Uh, and so I think that would be number three. And number four would be when people get saved, um, not trying to pull them into the church uh, and out of their kind of circle and family and friends so quickly. that actually trying to get their whole circle and family and friends safe. And we've seen that happen several times. And in the Middle East, that is the way that God is working. 
the people really need that. If they get pulled out of their circle and they're into the church, they, they just don't have the support network to sustain uh, when it gets tough for people. And so I think taking time to uh, visit and get to know and gain the trust of their whole family and circle uh, and really wanting to see whole groups of people come to faith together, not just individuals. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. And just a reminder, you can find the full notes on everything that Andy said at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org slash episode 63. See you next time.